We happen to be in the book of Daniel. We are going to deal with a message from Daniel 11, moving into Daniel 12, called The Wise Will Shine Forever. I would imagine that some of you tonight are a bit exhausted by the time change, the freeways, the elections, and whatever else may be on your plate in the last week or months. Maybe you've just been going through some trials. Maybe you've just been trying to lean into the Lord in many different areas of your life. But tonight we are going to see two action points. And they're in a, in a text that is exhilarating, exciting, um, end times kind of stuff. And I want to pray for us. But before I pray, I want to read the text that we're going to deal with tonight. But we're going to start a little bit before the actual text. And it's Daniel 11. I want you to look with me at verse 32. Daniel eleven thirty two. 32. Reading from the New American Standard, it says, By smooth words, Daniel eleven thirty two. He will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Park for a second. There was a time in history past and there will be a time in the future. And I would argue the time is now. For God's people to display strength and take action. Now, we're going to deal with a text tonight that is very end times, eschatology, end of the age, end of the world kind of stuff. But let me ask you a question. If you can't stand in today's times, and let's just assume for the moment, for the sake of argument, that the church will be here for a portion of the Great Tribulation, the time of great trouble, the unveiling of the Antichrist, etc., if you can't stand now, will you be able to stand then? I mean, relatively speaking, it's fairly easy to be a Christian in the United States. And it's especially easy to be a Christian in the United States if you're just kind of sliding into the church, into the back row, and sliding out so that, you know, before the last song is finished, I'm out of here because I got people to see, places to be, and lunches to eat, right? And that is sometimes the fullness of a modern person's Christianity. And that's if they get there every Sunday. You might remember that it wasn't that many weeks ago that I stood before a huge crowd of people and everybody said, we want to learn the book of Revelation. And half the crowd said, Daniel. And half the crowd said, Revelation, Daniel, Revelation, Daniel. It was like a, a tennis match. And so I said, hey, here's what we'll do. We'll teach Revelation and then we'll teach Daniel. And everybody, yeah, yeah. And so we taught the book of Revelation. 22 chapters. Well, the first night, they were hanging from the rafters, man. This place was filled. By about week five, things changed. Because people thought, oh, the book of Revelation, it's all this exciting stuff about the end times, but the first several chapters were uh, the Lord of the church telling the church, here's what you got going for you, and here's what you got to fix. And people were like, oh. And then a lot of the book of Revelation is pretty heavy and kind of dark. And, you know, all of a sudden we lose a little bit of our steam, a little bit of our excitement. 
for God's word and the things of God. It doesn't take much. But I want you to see as a bookend that God's people, in fact, it does say here, the people who know their God. That's Daniel 11.32. See, if you're a Christian, you know God. That is the definition of a Christian. Jesus said, this is eternal life, John 17, 3, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That is Christianity. Christianity is to know God and to have a life commensurate with, that lines up with, that knowledge, that relationship with God. Now, it's not going to be perfect all the time. There's going to be bumps in the road. There's going to be times when we're dry. There's going to be times when we're fighting temptation and maybe feel like we're even losing to it. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. This is what we need. Now, keep reading with me. It says, now when they fall, they will be granted a little help. Uh, Let's see, I, I skipped ahead. Those who have insight, 33, among the people will give understanding to the many, notice, yet they will fall by the sword, by flame, by captivity, and plunder for many days. Now we're looking at something that happened in the past. We'll swing to the future in a moment. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join with them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. Now, I want you to go all the way to chapter 12 for a second, and we'll come back and break down these other verses. But in chapter 12, we we kind of catapult, and uh, this is right in the center of Daniel's 70th week, the last seven years. Now, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has never occurred Since there was a nation, that's Israel, until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. There's a resurrection. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. There's another picture where the Bible affirms that where you end up when you die is your fixed position for eternity. There is everlasting life and everlasting disgrace. Everlasting life and everlasting contempt. Everlasting bliss and everlasting punishment. There's a debate now in the Christian church, and it's an understandable debate, and it's this. If a person doesn't meet Jesus Christ in this lifetime, is hell forever? Is it an eternal punishment? Well, there are a lot of strong Bible verses that certainly affirm that it is, though it is troubling to us. And it should actually motivate us to evangelism, but it is a troubling concept. And so notice it says there's everlasting life, Daniel 12, 2, everlasting others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. But notice those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness, like the stars, they will shine forever and ever. Now sometimes when we study end times prophecy, people say, well, what's the application, pastor? What do I do with this? Well, here's what you do. You look at Daniel 11, 
in verse 32, and you know that people who know their God will display strength and take action, and you ask yourself, is that me? Am I displaying strength and taking action in my Christian life? Now, I'm not talking about your strength, because if it, if it was my strength, I would be done from the very first step. I'm talking about the strength of weakness. I'm talking about the power of the risen Christ invading this jar of clay. I'm talking about the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead in you, giving you the ability to do what God's called you to do. Do you believe that? That's the power that you've been promised. And then verse 3, the other book in for tonight. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness... People who do great exploits for their God, 1132, and lead many to righteousness. That's evangelism, folks. That's all that is, but it's significant because when you lead a person to righteousness, you are leading them to the righteous one. You are leading them to Christ. And if you do, you will shine like the stars forever and ever. In the kingdom of our Father, you will shine. Is that what you want? You see, there is something there is a, uh, a request of us. There is a, a plan that the Master has for us. And it is exciting to be a soul winner. And it's exciting to stand for God. And sometimes to be overwhelmed by even the prospects of standing. But to stand nonetheless. And to say, Lord, make me strong because I'm weak. Make me strong because I want to run from this, but I want to stand for you. You stood for me, I want to stand for you. That's the question that you got to wrestle with as a Christian tonight, is do you want to stand? Now, the book of Daniel takes an interesting shift at this point, which is a bit debated, but even somebody like a commentator like James Montgomery Boyce, who's certainly not you know, uh, famous for his... Uh, prophetic views and has since gone home to be with the Lord, believes that this text swings from Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a type of the Antichrist. He lived and did what he did around 175 B.C. to 164, somewhere right in there. And he was a man who desecrated the Jewish temple. He was a Syrian leader. And he sacrificed a pig on the altar, he burned Torah scrolls, he forced the high priest to eat uh, swine's flesh, he uh, was telling the Jews you can't circumcise your children, he was doing despicable things. And finally, he was overcome, him and his forces were overcome by the Maccabean, uh, the record of the Maccabean revolt, uh, Judas Maccabeus, that time, in the intertestamental period, some of you are at least a little bit familiar with the books of First and Second Maccabees, which are historical uh, for historical purposes, but they're not in the canon. That is, they're not inspired books, but they have rich history. They tell this story. And out of this guerrilla warfare from this certain family, from a Jewish high priest, they uh, cleansed the temple. They got Antiochus and his forces out of there and they celebrated the Feast of Hanukkah. We're coming to the end of the year quickly. Isn't it amazing that we are? Now, from Antiochus Epiphanes, who 
lived before Jesus was born and did his ministry. Jesus told us of another man that's coming. Paul told us about him. And his name is Antichrist. So we're going to move from Antiochus to Antichrist. Antiochus Epiphanes, who lived in the past, is a prefigurement of the Antichrist in this sense. That what he did in the ancient days, in between Malachi and Matthew, in the 165, 174 to 165, or 175 to 164 period, will prefigure, foreshadow. He will have like qualities, negative ones, to the coming world leader who will make Jerusalem and Israel his target. The reason that you know that this is an end time scenario is because chapter 12 tells you that at this time there is going to be a resurrection. And so we know it's the end times. We know it's the very end of the story. We don't have to wonder if this is still you know, way in the past or future to Daniel but past to us. No, this is a future text. And what we have is we have this swing from Antiochus to Antichrist. That's the most important thing that you could write down if you're a note taker. We're moving from Antiochus, who's a type of the Antichrist, to the actual Antichrist himself. And at verse 36, we swing in the text. Notice what it says. Then the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. And will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. All over the uh, Old Testament, especially the God of the Bible, the God that we worship is called the God of gods and the King of kings. The Bible acknowledges that there are other gods with a small g in that they are idols, false gods. Not, not true, but false but still, he is the God above all gods, above all idols, uh, all the gods of the nations. Just because you say you worship God or you believe in God is not enough. You must have the right God. In the ancient world, there was a panoply of gods. There were, there were people who worshipped thousands to millions of gods. And so that wasn't unusual at all. The question is, which God and whom do you serve? Well, this one will magnify himself above every, we could say, so-called God. And notice he will speak monstrous, monstrous things, blasphemous things against the God of gods, the true God. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed, whatever God prophesies, will be done. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, NIV, for what has been determined must take place, or as Jesus put it, behold, I've told you in advance. Now, Bible students, in order to understand this time of indignation, I believe that you need to understand the time of indignation as the time of Satan's wrath. Now, I've made that argument from the book of Revelation. You can wrestle with that. Uh, for yourself, but I believe the time of indignation here, the assault on the Jewish people, the potential assault on the church, if the church is here, is Satan's wrath, not God's wrath. 
I believe that there's a good case to be made that the time of tribulation is not God's wrath, it is Satan's wrath. Tribulation simply means trouble, and it's people going through trouble. The question we wrestle with is who is the source of that trouble? Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Who was the source of the tribulation for the apostles? Certainly not God. Uh, Eleven of the twelve apostles died a martyr's death. God did not kill his apostles. The world did. The world persecuted Paul and Peter and the others. If you have ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you know how these stories went and what occurred. That was not God's wrath. That was Satan's wrath uh, against the church of the living God. And so I think the indignation there, at least something for you to chew on, or the time of wrath is not God's wrath, but Satan's. And he, this one who is the subject, I believe, the Antichrist, this coming king, our future, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women. Nor will he show regard for any other God, for he will magnify himself above them all. Now this world figure, and we know that Antiochus Epiphanes did this because he tried to say that he was God manifest. That's what his name Epiphanes means, God manifest. And they called him Epimenes, which means madman. (laughs) He thought he was a God. They thought he was a nut, right? And anybody in our age who claimed to be God or the Messiah, that's pretty much how we've categorized them too. And so this is what Antiochus did, but this is what this future leader will do. Notice, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. Now, the word for there for gods is a plural form. It is Elohim. And so some believe it could be the God of his fathers. Um, That would be the King James rendering of it. I think even the New King James says, neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, capital G-O-D. And so there are some that say, if it is to be rendered, Elohim is to be rendered God instead of God's first part of verse 37. Then is the Antichrist Jewish? Because that would mean, if the King James, New King James are correct, that this man has no regard for the God of his fathers, and some would say the fathers as in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Some would maybe even argue the founding fathers, you know. But that's, that's a left field argument, but just something to think about. But here... What does this mean? If it's God's, as the New American Standard and other modern translations do have it, then it would be that this man is a pagan, but he has decided to forego or push aside all the gods that his fathers worshipped. So if he's a pagan, he he doesn't buy into that. And that could include, you know, someone who was Egyptian or Syrian or Greek or Roman. Because we know that they had a whole host of gods and goddesses. Even in Athens, Greece, when Paul goes and preaches uh, on Mars Hill, 
there's thousands of altars there in the agora or the marketplace. And so this is kind of one of those things that we don't have to be dogmatic on, but it's kind of interesting to think about. Would a uh, re- restored Jewish nation, think about it, they're back in the land, except somebody who didn't follow the God of their fathers? I don't know. The nation is largely secular and agnostic and atheistic today. If you go to Israel, you might be surprised to know that a very small portion of Jews in Israel today believe in God. Some of them say they're agnostic. Some of them say that they're atheists. And most of them definitely do not accept Jesus as Messiah. So it wouldn't shock me if a world leader showed up and somehow, because he did good political things, at least in the beginning, they bought into that program. Even at the time of Antiochus, there were many Jews who forsook the covenant for the sake of political correctness or peace or prosperity, you name it. And so it, is, uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Notice, he will not have the desire for, of women. Now, there are some that believe that maybe that means he's a homosexual. Don't know. There are others that say, no, historically, the desire of all Jewish women was to be the mother of the Messiah. And so does he uh, openly reject the Messiah? He does speak monstrous things against the God of the Bible, so certainly that would apply. We don't know for sure, but he doesn't uh, honor or have regard of the desire of women. Does he hate women? Does he put them down? I don't know. Nor will he show regard for any other God. For he will magnify himself above them all. Would you all hold a place in Daniel and go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Hold your place in Daniel. We'll be right back there. But this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the Thessalonian congregation. 1 and 2 Thessalonians is filled with end time stuff. 1 Thessalonians 4, for example, is the chapter, famous chapter on the rapture. Well, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is dealing with apostasy, the Antichrist, the day of the Lord. Here's what he says. Now we request you, brethren, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the second coming, and our gathering together to him, to me sounds like the rapture, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure, verse 2, or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. That would be the return of Christ and the judgment of God. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, the day of the Lord will not come, unless, what happens? The apostasy or rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness, I think everybody says that's the Antichrist, is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above what? Every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. That would have to be the Jewish temple there. That's, I think, all Paul would be talking about. Displaying himself as what? As being God. So this final world leader or ruler, back to Daniel, will have a God complex. He will have a desire for worship. 
he will be saying to people, I am God. And Jesus said, in the last days, this is what will happen. Many will come in my name and will say, I am. Jesus said, this will be a sign unto you. But instead of honoring the God of his, or the gods of his fathers, back to Daniel 11.38, he will honor a God of fortresses. See that that's plural. A God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. Now most take the God of fortresses as a God of war. He will be a man of war. He will make war. He will dominate the world by war. Now you have to hold your place in Daniel again because we're going to Revelation 13. All right, let's turn over there. Revelation chapter 13. Now, this is the famous chapter about the Antichrist, Revelation chapter 13. And here's what it says about him. Revelation 13, look at verse 4. And they, that is the unbelieving world, Revelation 13, 4, worship the dragon. We know in the chapter that's Satan. Because he, the dragon, gave his authority to the beast, that's the Antichrist, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is what? Able to wage war with him. Remember, he honors a god of war or fortresses. Who is like the beast, the world will say. Who can battle with him? In Exodus 15, 11, the Israelites said, Who is like the Lord among the gods? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? And there was given to him, because God is sovereign, a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, goes right with Daniel, and authority to act for 42 months. That's 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. That was given to him. God is uh, the one who gives it to him. Notice he, he is an arrogant speaker. He speaks blasphemy against God. He's proud. And he gets authority from heaven to act for three and a half years. And notice this is verse 6 of Revelation 13. He opened his mouth uh, in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle. Probably represents his people. And those, that is those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. That's worldwide authority. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. That could presuppose that genuine believers are here at that time. You can wrestle with that. If anyone who has an ear, let him hear. This is what the Antichrist will do. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 11. So this Antichrist will be blasphemous. He will be a warmonger. He will have a God complex. These give you some things to write down and ponder about attributes of the Antichrist. He will have no regard for women. You can decide what that means. He will, he will be this man on a mission to dominate the world. There were people when Adolf Hitler was doing what he was doing uh, back in what the, he became chancellor in I think 1933. Um, by the way, when 
Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany and began to dominate that area and began to rouse the German people. He told the pastors in Germany these words. You take care of the church. I'll take care of Germany. And pretty much the bulk of pastors at that time jumped on board and backed Adolf Hitler. It got so bad in Germany, Erwin Lutzer writes in a book, that the trains that were carrying Jews to the death camps, packing them in to take them to these terrible death camps to put them in the ovens, when the trains would pass by a particular church, people would be worshiping on a Sunday morning. They would hear the whistle of the train and the Jews screaming from the boxcars. And they would sing their Christian hymns louder to drown out the whistle and the cries. And Hitler said to the pastors, I'll take care of Germany. You take care of the church. And do you know that Hitler, there's records of his statement saying that all you got to do with pastors is make sure that they have enough money and they won't be any trouble at all. Do you see some parallels to our day, folks? Do you see that sometimes in the midst of it should be as plain as the nose on our face, we just don't see what we need to see? We have trends now in the United States following right in line with Europe. And we, as the Church of Jesus Christ in America, need our eyes to open. Now God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He will use His people. And those who are wise will shine like the stars forever and ever. But look, make no mistake about it. We in a battle. But the battle belongs to the Lord. I didn't hear you. Oh, okay. I just want to make sure that you were out there. You see, he will take action, 39, against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Maybe that's uh, a reference to Satan. I don't know. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him. If you worship me, man, you're, you're good. And he will cause them to rule over the many. You, you get privileges if you're on board with my program. And will par parcel out land for a price because he will be so dominant, he'll own a bunch of land and so that's part of how he manipulates. The final war erupts. And at the end of time, I believe you could confidently write in your Bible, just before the return of Christ, the king of the south, somewhere down south of Israel, because remember, in these books that we read, Israel is always the center. And geography in the Bible moves from Israel as the center. So south of Israel, you have Egypt, you have Africa, so this could speak of African armies. Uh, you have the area of the Sudan and everything that's down there. North of Israel is Syria, but we know beyond Syria, we start moving up north and we're moving towards Russia and other places. And one thing that you could take note of, and I don't have time tonight, is you could write down Ezekiel 38 and 39. And you could begin to see 
that when God talks about an end-time war, he includes enemies coming from the north. He puts a hook in their jaw to move them toward the land of Israel. He'll ultimately deliver the land. But this ties all together. And so notice, there's a collision. The king of the south with him will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him. We have mention of chariots, horsemen, many ships will enter countries, overflow, and pass through. And so there will be warfare. Uh, one writer says this would further confirm the individual being addressed in verse 36 has swung from Antiochus to Antichrist. The king is distinguished from the king of the north in verse 40. Therefore, he cannot be Antiochus Epiphanes, so this can't be ancient. The king of the south is some sort of military leader. He comes from south of the Holy Land. Um, I mentioned to you the possibilities geographically. The king of the north, you have Syria, but you can go up from there and you can uh, do your own research on that. Verse 41. He will also enter the beautiful land. What land is that? That's Israel. In fact, when people uh, get excited about going to Israel, they call it what? The holy land. And, and a lot of people say, that's on my bucket list. Before I die... I want to go to the Holy Land. And another way, word for the Holy Land is the beautiful land. It's, it's a land, by the way, that is budded again. And that was predicted in Ezekiel 36 and 37, that the land that was once lie desolate will bloom again. And it is bloomed right in front of our eyes. In fact, do you know, Israel is in the top, I believe it's either five or three, of distri distribution of fruits and vegetables to the entire world. And at one point within the last, what, 70 to 100 years, the land was underwater and nobody even wanted to bother with it. It was swampland. It was, it was desolate. It was nothing. And it has bloomed again. And that's a fulfillment of Bible prophecy as well. And so he'll enter the beautiful land, will this Antichrist, Many countries will fall, all kinds of war, but these will be rescued out of his hand. Edom, Moab, the foremost uh, of the sons of Ammon. These are traditional enemies of Israel. They won't be invaded, and I, I take this as their geographic regions will not be invaded because uh, at this time, even when Daniel writes, this is kind of uh, past enemies of Israel. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, 42. The land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver, over all the precious things of Egypt, and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. He will begin to dominate the world. See the word hidden treasures there, the words hidden treasures? Joel Rosenberg wrote a book about uh, Israel and the epicenter, and he believes that it is possible that hidden treasures there may refer to oil being discovered in the land of Israel. I don't know if that's sound or not, but it is an interesting thought because you know with oil comes what? A ton of money. You have oil, you, you can begin to dominate the world in terms of economics. And so rumors from the east, from the north, <clears throat> will disturb him. He will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many, 45. And he, the Antichrist, will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion, his headquarters, if you will, 
between the seas, that's the Mediterranean and Dead Seas, the coast of Israel and inland, and the beautiful holy mountain, that would be Mount Moriah or the Temple Mount. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. We have another clue that the Antichrist, once he begins to dominate the world, will pitch his tents or his headquarters right there on Mount Moriah. Uh, Notice uh, the beautiful holy mountain is mentioned there or somewhere near it. And there are many who believe that he will help the Jews in some way rebuild a temple. And that temple is the one that many believe he goes into and proclaims himself to be God and causes the abomination that makes desolation, which is Matthew 24, 15, which Jesus said was spoken by Daniel the prophet. So here's the, that's the end of chapter 11, okay? So lots of incredible things. Jesus said in Luke 21, 20 and 21, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, recognize her desolation is at hand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of the city depart. And let not those who are in the country enter the city. Luke 21, 20 and 21. Now, at that time, remember when the Bible was originally written, there are no chapter breaks. We added chapter breaks to help us know where verses are located. Okay, that came later. Now, at that time, Daniel 12, 1, at what time? When all this stuff's going on with this person we've just been studying, right? At that time, I believe this is the middle of the 70th week we learned about in Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27. At that time, at this time of great trouble, great war, uh, world domination, claiming to be a god, wanting worship, Michael, the great prince who stands, this is a present continuous tense, he continues to stand guard over the sons of your people. Michael has a special relationship with Israel. He's the archangel we know about, and he is there described as the great prince. He stands over the sons of your people. Michael will arise. Now, what does that mean? Michael's already been guarding Israel. We've already learned about that in Daniel 10. Nobody fights against these enemies uh, of yours except Michael. Michael's already been standing guard. The word arise is a very important moment in this sermon, so stick with me. Is Ahmad. A-M-A-D. Ahmad. At this time, Michael will Ahmad. Now, let me just read from a lexicon because this is an important word. The word Ahmad means to stand in various relations, to arise, or to cease. The word can mean to stand still, to stop moving or doing, to cease. There's a quote from the Midrash, page 258, where Rashi... Uh, this is a, a 258 from another book, but Rashi, one of Israel's great scholars who had no concern regarding end time stuff and all of that, understood Ahmad, Michael will Ahmad, to literally mean that Michael will stand still. At this time, Michael will cease to intervene for the children of Israel. If that's what Ahmad means, 
If he's already been active and he ceases his activity, his, his uh, protection or restraining activity, then Michael stands still. Think of it this way. In the book of Job, God removes his protective covering from Job and he says to Satan, you can have at him, but you can't touch his life. And God steps out of the middle. Satan's complaint is, you have a hedge about this guy. That's why he honors you. That's why he worships you. But remove the hedge that you got around him. Let me at him. He'll curse you to your face. Well, at that time, Michael will Ahmad, step out of the way, if you will. And what will happen? Well, notice, I believe that this answers the question. And there will be a time of distress once Michael Ahmad's, such as has never occurred since there was a nation, that's Israel, because Israel is the subject here, until that time. And at that time, your people, and this is what is Daniel's prayer and question all along, what's going to happen to my people? Everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. The Hebrew word is yemalet. It means to be delivered, to be saved, to escape. It could speak of both rapture or resurrection. Michael will stand still, and then there's going to be this great uh, time of distress. Now, y'all good? Anybody need peanuts or anything? You all right? Okay. Now, this is, this, you got to see this. Now, I want to show you a couple of, of verses to buttress this point, to support it. 2 Thessalonians 2, where you were before, hold your place in Daniel, we'll be back. Just a few more verses, but you got to see this. So this is 2 Thessalonians 2. Now, how many of you have heard of teaching about the restrainer? Raise your hand if you heard about teaching of the restrainer. Now, um, there's been a debate among good scholars about who is the restrainer. I, I, I can't remember how many different views on the restrainer there are. And there are, but there are, we've probably, a lot of us have heard that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit, or the restrainer is the Holy Spirit in the church, or the restrainer is the church in the world, that kind of thing. But there's, there's more than that. There's probably at least over 10 views, but I think there's even more. But remember what you just heard about Michael ceasing and stepping out of the way? Now look at this. This is the verse, the verses we just looked at we're telling us about this Antichrist, what he's going to do. And so look at verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians 2. And you know, says Paul, what restrains him now. What restrains who? The man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. So that in his time he may be revealed. That's still the Antichrist being revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's already operational. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is what? He is taken out of the way. How many of you have ever played racquetball before? Racquetball players? Okay. So in racquetball, we have something called a hinder. And a hinder is when your opponent is between you and your shot that you want to make to the wall. So in racquetball, you want to hit the ball low on the wall. But if your opponent is positioned in front of you like this, <laughs> waiting for your shot, 
and you go ahead and execute the shot, it may be because you don't like them. <laughs> because if you hit that little blue ball into their body, it can produce various colors on their skin for many months. So if you're winding up and you say, I do like this person, or even if I don't, I am a Christian, I'm a pastor, should I hit this? And you say, hinder! And when you call hinder, that means you're in my way, man. And I didn't want to obliterate you. <laughs> I want you to live another day. We want to play tomorrow. So I called a hinder. You were in between me and my shot. Well, this restrainer who hinders the revealing or the dirty work of the Antichrist, the time of great trouble, he will at this time step out of the way. He will no longer be a hindrance to the operation of the full evil that will occur. Now, who's the restrainer? Let me tell you that I don't live and die with this view, but let me just submit to you that if you want a good biblical argument for who the restrainer is, I would argue that it's Michael. Michael the archangel. You say, Pastor Michael, how could you say that? I just made the biblical argument for you. I just connected Daniel 12.1 with 2 Thessalonians 2.7 to show you that that is a strong biblical argument for who the restrainer is. He's the prince of Israel, the great archangel Michael, who at this time will amad. He will no longer hinder. He will step out of the way, at least for a time. Something to think about. Again, I don't think it's that essential that we know who the restrainer is. I don't think we have to write a book about it. Although if it was called Michael, I'd probably buy it personally. But All right, one more. Go to, go to Revelation 12. Now check this out. Now, during the 70th week of Daniel, there is going to be a war. I believe that Revelation 12 is right in this time frame. Because in Revelation 12, the woman, who I believe is Israel, flees to her place. Some believe that that's Petra. She does that for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. That's Revelation 12, 6. But notice what happens now. And there was war in heaven. So I believe you're going to have Michael stepping out of the way at some point. But this is another consideration. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels... Revelation 12, 7. Waging war with the dragon and the dragon and his angels. Some of you have wondered, why, does the, why do people say that uh, Satan has his minions and Satan has demons or angels that follow him? Well, here's one verse. Satan has angels. Michael has angels. The good angels are on Michael's side, of course. <laughs> and then Lucifer has his evil angels. You all know when I talk about Michael that way, I'm just joking, okay? But anyway, just so I don't get an email. <laughs> anyway, so how this all comes together is that Michael, who has been restraining and wages war with the dragon and his angels, and uh, the dragon is, look at verse 9 of that same chapter, is thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now I believe this is in the 70th week, the last seven years. And so I heard a, uh, a loud voice in heaven saying, 
Now, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even to death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell and you who dwell in them. But notice, woe to the earth and to the sea because the devil has come down to you having what? Great wrath. There's Satan's wrath. Knowing that he only has a short time. How much time does he have? About three and a half years. And so here's what I think. This is my own opinion. I think that Michael will kick Satan out of heaven, or God does it, but Michael executes it once and for all. He can't accuse us anymore. He's thrown down during the 70th week down to the earth, and he knows, uh-oh, the clock is ticking short time. This, this is over. And then I believe Michael in some way, steps out of the middle so that Satan has a time where he can persecute the woman and her offspring, Israel and the church. Everybody with me? I know it's a little complicated, but this is how I think the Bible is teaching this time uh, that unfolds. All right, so back to Daniel and we'll finish it. Okay, so then what happens? If he has this time of wrath, if he can persecute the woman and do what he wants to do what's going to happen how, how is this going to end well the bible does teach us that this time will be cut short for the sake of the elect by the return of jesus christ and here's here's how it how it goes now it says daniel 12 1 we're only going to verse 3 and at and it says at that time end of uh, verse 1 your people everyone who's found Written in the book, I take that as the book of life, will be what? Will be rescued. Now, is the rescue a rapture? Is the rescue a resurrection? Is the rescue like God did in the book of Exodus where he especially protects his people? I, I don't know for sure, but that's something to chew on. And at this time, here's what happens. Many of those, and this may tell us that the rescue is actually a rapture or resurrection. Specifically here, a resurrection. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground, those who are dead, buried in the ground, will awake. They will be resurrected. These, these who awake to everlasting life. Now, I believe that what you have here is the first resurrection, the resurrection of the righteous at the return of Christ, and the rapture will go with that. But the others, I believe that's unbelievers in verse 2, uh, to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now, if you take Revelation 20, verse 4, with Daniel 12, 2, there is uh, the teaching that the first and second resurrections are separated by a thousand years. That's if you believe in a literal millennial reign of Christ. <laughs> if you don't, you believe that the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous will happen at the same time, at the end of the world, and Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats, and the sheep will go into the kingdom, and the goats will go into eternal condemnation. There are some really good scholars that believe that maybe we ought not take 
the thousand years literal because there's other verses that seem to say maybe this happens all at the same time. And everybody gets raised, but some people to a resurrection of life and other people to a resurrection of condemnation. You could check out, write down John 5, 24 through 29, where Jesus says something very similar. So that's another thing just to think about. But there are other, uh, we would call them uh, millennials or those who hold to a literal millennial uh, reign of Christ, and I would be in that camp who believe they're separated by a thousand years. First and second resurrection. First resurrection is the righteous to life. Second resurrection at the end of the thousand years to death, which is the end of Revelation chapter 20. And finally, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead many to righteousness, those who witness their faith, they will shine like the stars, what's your Bible say? Forever and ever. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Proverbs 11, verse 30. And so, this is the story of the end of the age. It's pretty exciting. Pretty sobering, <laughs> right? You, you look at it and you go, wow, man, this is, this is something. This is good and evil. This is light and darkness. This is, but did you notice how it ends? How it ends is God comes and rescues his people who have been written in the book of life and says they're going to shine like the stars forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Daniel. Thank you for the exciting end times prophecy. Some of this is really sobering and even hard. But it is something that Daniel was given as a messenger from heaven came and showed Daniel what was to come. And by extension, because we hold the book in our hands tonight, what will come for us. And here's what we do know, Lord. There's a lot of details here. There's some debates here. But here's what we do know. Jesus Christ is coming again. And every eye will see him. And he will light up the sky. And your church has been praying for 2,000 years. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Your church has been crying and singing, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord, come. Father, we have a broken world. We don't have to tell you that. We have a world that sin has uh, left its stain and its curse, but thank you that you came to this world to save us, Jesus. You came the first time to deal with sin and deal with death, and you've done that, and that's done. And the second time you come, it won't have to do with that. It will have to do with a rescue, a resurrection, a rapture, and a judgment a judgment of the unbelieving world, but you are going to come as our great champion. You're going to make the grandest of all grand entrances that have ever been seen, or I believe ever will be seen. And we will be with you forever and ever. There will be a long banquet table. There will be 
the best food we've ever had, the best fellowship we've ever experienced. We will know in that day even as we are known. And you will wipe away each tear from our eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more pain. For the former things will have passed away. Death will die when you come again. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And those who have gone before us, whether it's Moses or David or Luke, or even archangels like Gabriel and Michael. But although we can see them and talk to them, Paul and Peter and others, Lord, the most exciting thing of all is to see you face to face. We will see our God. We will see our Savior. And we will say, as the book of Isaiah says, there is our God for whom we have waited Here is our God for whom we have hoped. We have a living hope in Jesus Christ. We know how the story ends. And if we're a Christian tonight, we're on the winning team. And yes, there are hard times. And yes, there are question marks. And yes, even today, we said see you later to a sweet sister named Pat Covey. But we know we are going to see Pat again. We know she's alive. And there are others that we've said see you later to in this fellowship. People who are sitting here tonight who have said not goodbye, but see you later. And we are going to live and reign with him forever and ever. Can I ask you, keep your head and heart bowed. Do you know that hope? Do you have hope? Do you have hope behind, beyond this life? Do you have hope beyond this moment? Is your hope anchored in the ebbs and flows of who you are or what goes on in society? Find your hope in Christ. If you don't know Jesus, would you keep your head and heart bowed? Just pray. Lord Jesus, if this is who you are, if this is how the world is going to sum up, if you made me for your glory, if you love me that much to come and die on that cross for me, I want to know you. I want to not only know you, I want to be strong for you. I want to shine. I want to lead other people to righteousness. I want to be a witness of hope in a world that can often be so hopeless. Would you fill me with that hope? Would you change my heart? I repent of my sin. Pray it if it's you. I repent. I trust in you. Your death on that cross, your resurrection, I believe in you. Be my Lord and be my Savior. Show me the way. If you're a Christian and the Lord's been stirring in your life, it's time to respond to Him. It's time to just get to know Him better. Start right there. Just get to know Him better. Everything else will flow from that. Father, for this precious congregation, those who have come out on a Wednesday night to learn Your Word, but to know You better, May you bless them, may you keep them, may your beautiful face shine upon them, and may you give them shalom, peace. Amen.